Second Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. And for those of us who are familiar with Second Samuel chapter 11, there, there is a sense of confusion as well as fear when we come to this part of David's story. For it's a defining moment. A dark blot on David's life. In fact, in my opinion, few places in Scripture are as deeply devastating as the one that we see here in 2 Samuel 11. It's confusing to us because it is such a monumental collapse. I mean, this, this is the man after God's own heart. The one God specifically chose as a shepherd boy to lead his kingdom in justice and righteousness. And that is essentially the dominant character of his life since we began following his story as a young boy. Again, just think with me for a moment about what we know of David. He was the king that God had chosen for himself in 1 Samuel chapter 16. By the way, God chose him knowing that the events of 2 Samuel 11 would happen. God chose you knowing that there would be times you would fail Him. So this is one of God's chosen followers, one of His, one of his people, in His specific case, King of Israel. We also know that throughout his story that the Bible says over and over again in 1 Samuel as well as 2 Samuel, they, they, they use the phrase that the Lord God was with him. The Lord God was with him. We also have learned that God gave him victory wherever he went. Wherever he went, there was success and fruit. And in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we learned that David had worked hard to lead God's kingdom in, in justice and righteousness. And, and these few things that I've mentioned, these are just the highlights of his life. Now again, we know David wasn't perfect. We know that. But his character was consistently good, righteous, kind, and faithful. David was 
God's gift to Israel, and God gave him great success. And to top it all off, we have seen throughout our study how God is using David to point all of us to Jesus. So when we come to 2 Samuel 11 and our stomachs turn at David's moral collapse, often our first emotional response is confusion. How did this happen? This is where we have to remind ourselves that David, despite all that God had given him and all that God has done for him, that David was a sinner just like us. And this is why we not only have a sense of confusion when we come to 2 Samuel 11, when we think about this happening to him, but that feeling is often followed up with a sense of fear about ourselves. That if this could happen to David, who's to say that it can't happen to me? In fact, Alistair Begg says in his comments on this chapter that 2 Samuel 11 provides us with more than we want to know about David and far more than we want to face about ourselves. John Woodhouse in his commentary said, in the disaster of King David's fall, we see the damaged and weak human nature that we share with him. And things will never be the same again for David after this moment. Because again, it was a defining moment. Of all the good he accomplished, this dark shadow would now be cast over his life. In fact, in the book of 1 Kings, when we see the legacy of the kings of Israel chronicled there, here's what it says about David in 1 Kings 15, verse 5. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that God commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. So after this moment, David's story will never be thought of or mentioned without thinking of this. Now when we see this failure from one of God's servants, I think the reason that we feel fear is because we know that if David was capable of such a collapse, so are we. So there, there are a couple of dangerous approaches that you can take to this passage. And again, I just, I just want to mention them practically here before we dive into the first five verses, and that's all the verses we're going to look at this evening. But two, we could mention more, but at least two dangerous, dangerous approaches to 2 Samuel chapter 11. The first one would be this, the danger of seeing David's failure as something we are incapable of doing ourselves. That's the first danger. To open up 2 Samuel chapter 11 and to say, well, that'll never happen to me. 
or I, I don't even think I'm capable of doing this. In other words, when we approach 2 Samuel chapter 11 not taking it seriously, we are entering into a very dangerous frame of mind in our Christian walk. That's why the Bible says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to all of us. Okay? So that, that's, that's the first danger. And I really want you to think about this next danger. Okay? The second danger in approaching this passage is allowing the enemy, Satan, to accuse our hearts of sin that God has already forgiven. To the point that we find ourselves completely downhearted, dejected, and upset. Because just as the Holy Spirit is at work through the Word of God in our hearts, Satan's emissaries, even when we study Scripture, can come to us as we read a passage like this, and, and, and he or they will say things like, uh, now, there's something I need to remind you about. In case you've forgotten, Satan says, you need to know that you've done this, that you're guilty, that you've been unfaithful to God. The Bible tells us that Satan is an accuser of the brethren. That's what he's doing. He knows he cannot win the battle against God that battle's already lost. So he is spending every moment he can, not only blinding the eyes of the lost, but he wants to take the hearts and minds of God's children and run them through the garbage of their past, a past that has long been forgiven. So we cannot allow ourselves and our enemy to uncover that which has already been covered by God in Christ Jesus through confession and repentance. I know this to be true because I know the many times that I have approached God's Word. And I have thought to myself when Scripture says that our sins has He removed, I start thinking, well, Lord, I know it says that, but, but don't you remember that one thing I did over there? Does it, does it involve that too? And, and that's, that's the game that Satan and his emissaries will play. So we must be careful that we don't approach this passage in those two extremes. We cannot approach it, not take it seriously as if this could never happen to us. Neither do we need to approach it rummaging through our past as if, God hasn't forgiven us. All right, so, so with those things in mind, I'm going to give you just a couple of, well, more than a couple. I'm going to give you five things from this passage. Number one, here's the first thing I want you to write down. The king was safe, but not from himself. The king was safe, but not from himself. That's the context. That's the setting of this. Look at verse one. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. 
but David remained at Jerusalem. So what we have here is obviously another military conflict. And Israel, led by David's military commander, Joab, is indeed successfully defeating the Ammonites. That's the setting of 2 Samuel chapter 11. But we see a little phrase at the end of verse number 1 that is often a source of discussion, which is David remained at Jerusalem. Joab, all of Israel, are out at war. David is at Jerusalem, he's at home. Now, it's obvious that the narrator wants to show us this, or it wouldn't be mentioned. He's pointing this out within the context of the battle. However, I'm not sure that as some have suggested, that there is actually a problem with David remaining at Jerusalem. As if he wasn't fulfilling his kingly responsibilities by not being with his army. In fact, I've heard a many of applications suggesting that if David had been with the army where he was supposed to be, then none of this would have happened. Now let me say, I think it's most likely true that had David been with the army, this may not have happened. But I'm not so sure that it's true that David was not where he was supposed to be. And what I mean by that is, this was not the first time that David had not gone into battle with his army. And in those times, it was never noted as a kingly failure. The, the entire time in First and Second Samuel, when, 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 when David is not with them, it's never pointed out as if he was being lazy or slack or he wasn't where he was supposed to do. So, be, so, so, I, so I think it it is entirely legitimate for him to be able to do what he did in remaining in Jerusalem and just sending Joab and the army without him being there. After all, he's the king. There's a lot on his plate. And it's never looked at in a negative light anywhere else. But the emphasis is still there. Israel's at war. David has remained in Jerusalem. And here's what I believe that means. He's safe. He's safe. The king is safe from battle. The king is safe from war. You know, it's your king out there on the front lines. We don't need to lose him. He's an integral part of the whole operation. So, so, so it may very well be that David remaining in Jerusalem is the narrator just showing us here that he's safe. Now, he's safe from the military battle, but he's not safe from the moral battle. He may be safe from war, but he's not safe from himself. And this is the point. The seed of every known sin lies within our own heart. The king was safe, but not from himself. Because it's what's on the inside of us that is most dangerous to us, not the threat of what's coming from the outside. 
Consider what Jesus said in Matthew 15. He called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand. Listen to me. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. All right? That is your proof text for eating as many donuts as you want to eat. All right? But listen to what Jesus said next. It's what comes out that defiles a person. And Peter said, explain the parable to us. That would have been Peter. I don't get it. Explain it to me. And Jesus said, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this, Jesus said, is what defiles a person because it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual sin and theft and lying and slandering. Jesus said, these are what defile a person. And they don't come from out there. They come from in here. In here. And the point is, we could lock ourselves up in a closet the rest of our lives. But we'll still be in the presence of our greatest danger. Ourselves. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So, the setting, the context is, as we think about temptation, the king is safe, but not from himself. Right? Here's the second thing. All sin needs is an opportunity. All sin needs is an opportunity. Verse 2. Then it happened one evening. Then it happened. Then it happened. What happened? An opportunity happened. An opportunity came. The opportunity for sin to conceive in David's heart. And that's all that sin needs. It just needs an opportunity. James said, each person is tempted when he is drawn away or lured and enticed by the desires of his heart. And that desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is finished, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. You see, the desire for sin is already there in our hearts. We don't have to go anywhere else to find the desire for sin. We are depraved people. It is our natural bent. We were born into sin. We will always struggle with sin. That's the battle in itself. Not the sin out there, the sin in here. But when opportunities present themselves for sin to take place, the battle significantly intensifies. And that's how sin is committed. The sinful nature of our desires, which is already there, you're already holding it within you tonight. The sinful nature of our desires unites with an opportunity that has been put before us. And by the way, opportunities abound. Opportunities abound. That's why in the context of the sexual sin that we see taking place here, that we need to consider all the opportunities that may be in front of us 
for sin to conceive. Whether it's through our television sets, our phones, our computers, our relationships with people away from the home, whatever opportunities come, they're there for the purpose of conceiving sin in our lives. And that's why we pray to the Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, help me to avoid even the desire. Help me to not even come into contact with the opportunities that sin needs to conceive itself in my life. This is where David is. He's found himself in a position where the desire of his sinful flesh has met an opportunity. Look at it again, verse 2. It happened one evening that David got out from his bed, the Actual Hebrew word there is couch, so it's not for certain he was actually laying in a bed like you are thinking of. He was just reclining somewhere, and he, he gets out of this place where he was sitting, and he walks on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Insert opportunity. All right? Here's the third thing. When David saw Bathsheba, he lost sight of God. When David saw Bathsheba, he lost sight of God. Now the text speaks for itself. David is walking on the roof of his palace. Obviously not the same style of roof that we're accustomed to. So his vantage point would have made it possible for him to see this even by accident. I've been there. Some of you with me. The place where David's palace sat on the hill of Mount Zion, and you can walk out in this rubbish of where the palace is, and they're continuing to uncover it through excavation even today. And you can just you can just look around, and you see the the valleys, and and on the other side of the hills, just houses stacked up. Those of you from West Virginia, just think West Virginia for a moment. All right, you're standing on top of the mountain. You look down, you can see the next ten houses below you, all the way down the holler. All right. So, so, so this, this whole situation, this vantage point that David would have had up on the roof, um, I'll not sing for you, but it's up there on the roof. He, he could have seen this even by accident. And, and by the way, I think most likely that this was probably the case, that he couldn't help what he saw. He couldn't help seeing her. So, so the unintentional glimpse wasn't the problem. It was the purposeful gaze that brought the sin. He couldn't help that he saw her, fellas, but he couldn't stop himself from staring at her. That's what it says in verse 2. That she was very beautiful to behold. And that's where the emphasis is put. Behold means to look at. He's bringing out the fact that he couldn't take his eyes off of this naked woman that maybe accidentally he sees bathing. He's looking at her. He's staring. He's gazing. And the question arises is what about Bathsheba? Now, I don't think we should be too hard on her. Because we don't know anything about this culturally in terms of bathing and privacy and how this even happens. So it's wrong for us to assume anything. Nor does the text suggest that she was acting 
provocatively. The facts are that he saw her bathing. An opportunity for sinful desires to be birthed had presented itself even innocently. But what happens next is the downward spiral or progression of sin's temptation. And here's what we have to think about it in our own lives. Because we can either deal with sin and temptation immediately when it pops up by the strength of God and His grace, or we can give that temptation an open door into our hearts. We either do as Joseph did, we choose to run no matter what we lose in the process, or we choose to linger. David chose to linger. Well, I'm up here by myself, perhaps. I have the best vantage point. Nobody can see me seeing. What's this going to hurt anything? So he lingers. He saw Bathsheba, and he lost sight of God. Verse 3, look at it. David sent, after he sees her, he says, i got to find out more. David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? The, the structure of the language is, is not so much a question but a statement. Uh, do you not realize that this is Bathsheba? You know her, the daughter of Eliam, the, the, the wife of Uriah. You, you know that. Now, David should have taken his thoughts captive at that moment, but he just had to know more. And here's what he discovers. He discovers that she was married, the wife of Uriah. He discovers that her husband was out of town. Uriah is with Joab in battle. But then he discovers that she belongs to a family that had been loyal to David. This is the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was the father of Ahithophel. So Bathsheba is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who was one of David's primary counselors. Now, whether David knew the family or not, it doesn't change the sin, all right? And let me make that clear. Whether he knew the family or not brings no kind of bearing on whether or not this was a bad sin or an okay sin. My point is, it just makes it worse. It just makes it worse that you continue pursuing something that you know is wrong and wicked against some of the people who've been so loyal to you. Clearly, David should have never started this investigation in the first place, but his knowledge now means he definitely should have stopped it. But he didn't. He still pursued, and that's one of the dangers of lingering with sin. Because listen to me, young men, we think that we can make it stop whenever we want. But that is the destructive, deceptive nature of sin. We can't make it stop without the divine intervention of God. Verse 4 says that David sent messengers and took her. She came to him. He laid with her. She was cleansed from her impurity. I think you understand what I mean by that or what the word, what the text means by that. 
which further implicates why we understand she's pregnant in verse 5, okay? And then she returns to her house. Now, I've really struggled on a very personal level with this phrase, he took her. I've struggled with that. I don't know if this was David using his position and power to force or coerce her into this, or if Bathsheba willingly and excitedly accepted his invitation, as it may indicate when it says here that she came to him. It's a struggle because we see he took her, but yet she came to him. Scholars and commentators are split right down the middle on this. And I don't think we can be dogmatic either way. What we do know for sure is that David saw her, he sent for her, she came to him, they slept together, and then she went home. That's what we know. And I think it's the brevity of this account that adds so much to our confusion about this dark valley in David's life. Because we have very little details, don't we? There's, there's no record here of any conversation that they had. doesn't mean they didn't have any. I'm just saying there's no record of it. We don't know. We don't know what they said. We don't know what the exchanges were. There's no description of their emotions. And there's absolutely no context whatsoever for David's actions. Very little detail. That's why we, we begin to think, was, was he under an unusual amount of stress? After all, his men are at war. Were, were there difficulties at home in his marriages? Did, did he feel unappreciated or maybe unwanted by them? And for that matter, where are any of his wives during this episode? None of them are mentioned. Was sexual temptation always a struggle for David? Are there scenes of Bathsheba coming on to David prior to this that we're, we're unaware of? But my point is, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things missing that the Bible doesn't want us to address because it doesn't want us to know. All that it wants us to see is what it's focused on, and that is the monumental failure of an otherwise righteous and faithful king. So Bathsheba returned home. David's lust had been satisfied. Adultery had been committed. And perhaps in David's mind, the whole thing was over. Nobody will ever know what happened. Except we come to verse 5. And verse 5 says that the woman conceived. And she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Write down number 4 here. Sin always leaves a mark. Sin always leaves a mark. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully. I've touched on this before, 
as your pastor to help you understand that this child is not the judgment of their sin. Okay? No, this child is the natural, biological result of a man and woman coming together in this manner. This is about the birds and the bees. It's not judgment. But the act of their sin has indeed left its mark. And may it be a stern warning to all of us that sin always leaves a mark. Sin never makes things easier for us. It always makes life a little bit more challenging. And this is a mark that David and Bathsheba are going to have to deal with. They're going to have to address it. So what's David going to do? We're going to have to wait and see. But, but let me give you one final word, and here's the fifth and final thing. It is only in Jesus that we find forgiveness of sin and safety from ourselves. It is only in Jesus that we find forgiveness of sin and safety from ourselves. So there obviously is certainly more to come in the story. Devastatingly, David is going to continue making a lot of mistakes as he seeks to deal with his himself. But eventually, thanks be to God, he will confess the sin and find forgiveness in God's mercy. And so we have Psalm 51, that lovely chapter that helps all of us in our deepest, darkest valleys of sin climb out again into the arms of a loving, merciful God. So it all works together, and we will eventually come to it. But even now, may this text serve to show us once again that it is only in Jesus that we can find forgiveness of sins, and it's only in Jesus that we can find safety from ourselves. I hope you've been paying attention to the events surrounding Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth. You know, as Americans, we don't always find ourselves loving the monarchy, but I'll give you food to chew on. This is exactly what God established for it to be. Anyway, you can think on that yourself whether or not what God's governmental designs really are. But I've seen a lot of things from the queen. She's a Christian woman. You've probably noticed that in all the things that you're paying attention to. During her Christmas address in 2011, Queen Elizabeth said, although we are capable of great acts of kindness... Should I do it in my British accent? No, I'd offend the British among us. Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us 
that we need saving from ourselves. From our recklessness and our greed. So God sent into the world a Savior with the power to forgive. Her Majesty gets it right. We need saving from ourselves. David needed saving from his self. And there's only one way that, one that can offer that salvation, and that is Christ alone. So how is it that God is going to fulfill his promise to bring his kingdom through a man like David who's failed so greatly? Well, let me give you the answer to that. Grace. Grace. God never abandons his covenant people. In fact, he overcomes their sin and shame by the greatness of his grace. Look, our sins, they are many, but his mercies, they are more. David was a sinner just like you and me, but God's kingdom would not ultimately be fulfilled in David, just like it's not ultimately fulfilled in us. God's kingdom is going to be fulfilled and was fulfilled is fulfilled in a son of David, Jesus. The one who was without sin, the one who was in every way tempted like we are, yet remained pure, innocent, and perfectly holy. It is not on David that we put our trust, and it's not on one another that we put our trust. It is on Jesus and Jesus alone that we trust. And that is why we pray every day to King Jesus. Lead us not into temptation. Save us from ourselves. Deliver us from any opportunity that is brought in my path today for sin to conceive. The king was safe, but not from himself. All sin needs is an opportunity. When he saw Bathsheba, he lost sight of God. Sin always leaves a mark. But it's only in Jesus that we find forgiveness of sin and safety from ourselves. Therefore, 